what is your favorite kind of movie? Right? Just think of genres. If you're to sit down uh, on the couch and try to watch something or figure out a show, what are you going towards? What are the kinds of, of maybe it's TV shows at this point because they're kind of just long drawn out movies now. Uh, but what, what are those for you? Uh, for some of you, any comedy fans? Like you just want to giggle and that you're calling it a day, right? Uh, how about uh, like action movies? right? You're looking for Rambo, like in whatever iteration, you just want more of it, like explosions and, you know, that whole deal. All right, uh, any uh, rom-com, romantic comedy, is that? Okay. Hi, my name is Don, and I like romantic comedies. <laughs> All right, part of it being this big of a guy, I have no problem admitting that to any of you, so um, I enjoy them. Uh, wh what about like dramas? Anybody, any drama fans? Okay, a couple. Um, my two favorite kind of movies, uh, my, number, my number one are the whodunits, right? Uh, meaning the ones where it's like, a like you're trying to figure out the entire time what's going on, uh, right? It's like the game of Clue lived out on a TV screen where something happened, you're trying to figure it out, uh, you're getting thrown this way and that way, you think you know who did it, but then at the end it might be this guy, right? Uh, and so I love those, but my second favorite kind of movie are, uh, you know, I, this is getting, we're getting nerdy and you're getting to know me, so here's all of me. Uh, I like post-apocalyptic thrillers. Nietzsche, I understand, right? Here, here's what I mean. I, I love the movies where like some end of the world has happened uh, and, and, and humans are trying to refigure out how do we put culture back together, how do we reorganize into whatever needs to happen. Uh, you find that there's new enemies that emerge after these. You find there's new heroes uh, that step up, right? These are the movies where uh, the guy who was like the uh, junior high science teacher, which if you're in here, we love you. Uh, but like at the end of it, you're Rambo in these movies, right? Like all of a sudden you just needed a reason and now you're out there doing your thing. Here, here's why I love it. I love uh, I love going through like the movie writers and the directors. I love watching how people portray everything that we know is gone. And we've got to figure out how we're going to go forward. Right? Everything we're used to is, is wiped out. You can't go back to and say, well, we used to do this, 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 and this. Where everything resets and we're thinking in different ways. Uh, all of us hate change. Right? And those of us that say we like change, that's only in the things we like to change. Everything else we don't want to change, right? Uh, I like to change, but the reality is I like to change like new mayonnaise when it comes in because I like the same sandwich every day, right? So we like change, but we don't really like change. The reality in these movies that I enjoy is these movies put us in a position to think if we were forced into a spot where we had to figure thing, everything out from ground zero, how would we do it? And there's something about that. When Jesus shows up, that's what he's asking us to rethink. In this section of Scripture, uh, when Jesus is giving these final words, he's asking his disciples uh, to know that the way that they've been following him as of now is coming to an end. This Messiah that they've been long waiting for, for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, is coming uh, he's here, but he's going to go away, right? It's all coming to somewhat of a conclusion. But there's going to be this season afterwards where they've got to figure it out. 
There's going to be a way that they are, uh, Jesus won't be physically in bodily form walking around uh, to show them what to do and to, and to tell them what to do and send them out and bring them back. There's going to be a point, right? Uh, they don't know, but it's within like 24 hours. There's going to be a point where Jesus dies. He's going to resurrect. He's going to then ascend into heaven and everything everything that they're going to have to do is going to be without him physically on earth. Now, for those of us uh, who are in this room, we're 2,000 years past that moment, so we just assume uh, that that is normal and that that is right, right? You probably never met Jesus walk around, or if you did, right, uh, it wasn't the real one, okay? You may have claimed it when you're on Michigan Avenue, but that wasn't him, just so you know, right? What I'm saying is, is, as we jump into this, we start getting this picture of Jesus. Uh, we, we start getting this picture of what life's going to have to be like without him physically walking around. We're in a section of Scripture covering Jesus' last words with his disciples before the cross. A week ago from this section was Palm Sunday. Right? He's made his triumphal entry. He's entered in Jerusalem. Earlier this evening, they ate the Seder dinner together, remembered and celebrated Passover. Jesus has just washed their feet, and when he's done speaking, they will go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, where Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, and carried away to his crucifixion. And in between those moments, Jesus gives these final words. Uh, it's his last conversations, or teaching, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, this is how he's leaving them. And there's not a lot of new stuff. Some of it's summarizing. He does say a new command I have for you, or my command I give to you, right? To love one another as I've loved you. But as he's going through, what he's doing is, is giving these final words. And I want us to read this with weight. And I want us to understand uh, the depth behind it and, and the charge to it. In John chapter 13 through 17, we're working through his last words, and kind of like some of my favorite movies, the world that they know is about to come to an end, and they are going to need to not only adjust and survive in this new way of living, they are going to have to live out their identity in Christ while obeying the commands and call God has put on their life. And it's no different than what we currently experience, but for them, they got to have Jesus, Last week, we talked about Jesus' warning to them that the world is going to hate you because the world hates Jesus. And Jesus says, remain in Christ and like Christ, live different than the world while loving the world all at the same time. This week, what we're looking at is this. Jesus is letting them know that their world is going to get shaken. And he's leaving and they are going to have to figure it out how to live with him and like him, but without him. He's not leaving them high and dry, right? Uh, let's stand as we read Jesus' words together. We're going to be in John chapter 15. Verse 5. Sorry. John 16, verse 5. I promise I prepared for today. All right? He says this, But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asked me, where are you going? Rather, you were filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Lord Jesus, would you draw us into this? Father, would you, would you give us a fresh understanding of this role of the Holy Spirit? Father, would you give us the, the, the gravity and the weight behind Jesus' words as he knows he's about to leave them and they know, or they're about to know, how severe of a removal that's going to be. But for Jesus to say that this is to our advantage, that the Holy Spirit comes. Father, would we, would we feel the weight of that and live in the same way? Uh, that the Holy Spirit who has come and who lives among us and in us, Father, that, that same Spirit uh, that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And Father, would you, would you help us see in this, in this role uh, where your role is and where our role is uh, so that we can be obedient and know fully who you are and what you're doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. If we were to go from last week into this week, and here I think it's helpful to recap because uh, we can section this. It's been seven days since we read words that it, when this was like the live filming uh, happened like two seconds before what we're just reading. So sometimes we can grab this section of Scripture and just read it and think, okay, well, this is, instead of realizing, man, there's just been this train that's been coming, and this is one of the cars on that whole train that Jesus is moving us to where he wants us to be. Jesus is saying things like, you're going to have persecution, but you're also going to have provision. You're going to face rejection, but you're not going to do it without resources. He says that you might even be hated, and here we find out, but you're always going to have a helper. And as we roll through this teaching of Jesus, what hits us, I'm praying, is this reminder for us of who we're supposed to be in light of who God is. And to know who God is and how he's working and what that looks like and how do we engage in that. And for us to know the roles, right? I'm a good team player so long as I've got clarity on what everybody's doing. If nobody knows what's going on, I don't mind taking the lead. I don't mind sitting in a chair and saying nothing. I just got to know, right? And some of us in our Christian walk, it's very similar. We, we may not know enough of who God is and what he's doing, and we may not know enough of who we are and what God's called us to and called us not to. And so sometimes we get the we, we get our Christian life mixed up a little bit because we're not sure who's supposed to do what. And sometimes we'll take God's job, right? And we're wondering when God's going to take ours. And in sections like this, what we start seeing is God's good just sticking with his job, doing what he said he was going to do, being who he said he was going to be. And oftentimes his posture is waiting for us to actually to do our part. So today what I want us to read through is this uh, section of Scripture where Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave, but actually when I leave, I'm going to send someone to you, and it's to your advantage. Think about it this way. In some ways, if you read through the Greek, it's easy to come up with Jesus saying, there's, it, it's, there's part of this that's better for you. 
that I'm not here. Now, I don't know what Christian walk you've lived, but that isn't lining up with what I think sometimes. I've often had this, man, if I could see Jesus teach, like if I could have been there at the Sermon on the Mount, if I could have been there when they raised the guy through, uh, lowered the guy through the roof, if I could have been there to see Jesus feed the 15,000, if I, you get what I'm saying? So when I've got that like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, those are the moments where I'm like, that would help my unbelief. But Jesus says there's a season where he was going to come do all of that. He's leaving, and it's actually better for us for him physically and bodily form to not be here, but for us to receive the one to whom he's sending this helper. He says in verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? If you're a good, uh, if, if you've got a good memory on Bible, you'll know that that doesn't sound right. Because if you only read a couple chapters back in John 13, Peter actually asked, Lord, where are you going? It sounds like either Jesus forgot, which my theology won't allow me to believe that, right? Or Peter was asking something different. And if that wasn't enough, Thomas asked in John 14, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? So when Jesus says, uh, right, none of you ask me where you're going, they're probably like, we did. We did ask you. We're trying to figure this out, man. Like, you know, we're human. You're God. Could you just bridge the gap? Help us walk through this. But if you were to read through that, what you would find is, is if you read through Peter and Thomas's words and, they're, and what they're looking for, you'll find that they don't really care where Jesus was going. What they cared was they just didn't want him to leave them. They didn't really care where he was going. What caught him was that he wasn't going to be with them anymore. A lesson here is sometimes our own self-interest too often stops us from wanting to go with Jesus. If we're honest, too often we don't want to follow Jesus, we want Jesus to stay with us. I don't want to leave here, I like when you're here. Because I'm here and you're here and this is good, but when you go there, I don't really want to go there, I want to stay here. Does that make sense? So Peter and Thomas are asking these questions, and, and I think genuinely, like us, they're asking what they believe is, they're trying to figure this out. But Jesus challenges those questions when he almost repeats their question, but helps them see through their motive. He says, but because I have said these things to you, grief has filled your heart. Yeah. I'm leaving. And that scares you. Not only does it scare you, it, it puts a level of mourning and grief and suffering and pain. There's, there's a part of you that doesn't know how to keep going if I'm not here with you. And I pray that's true of us in Jesus. That, that, that when Jesus is over there and we're over here, that there is grief in us because we're not with him where he is. He says, but I tell you the truth. Not that Jesus ever lies, but when he says, I'm telling you the truth, it, it it, it, it pulls us in, right? Well, what, what do we got? Here's what he says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I'm leaving. Because if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When God sent his son, Jesus was, uh, was fully God and fully human in a human body. And that human body is sitting here telling him the human body is about to leave. However, when I leave, I'm going to send the helper to you. 
And when we read through this, Jesus sends the Spirit, still fully God, still looking for a body. But he doesn't show up as one person. He falls on his people. And so we become the body that the Spirit inhabits. Like my movies, it's all about to change. Jesus is leaving, and he says it's to our advantage. If the helper, the Holy Spirit, is to our advantage, then we better understand what's about to happen. Verse 8, and, when, and he, when he comes, will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the Holy Spirit revealing how separated from God your life really is. The good news about Jesus is really good. But if we don't fully understand the bad news, it's hard to see the good news. The bad news that God created everything and it was good, right? Even when we get to that last day, start, stuff starts getting really good. God was walking in the garden and speaking to the humans he created, but the enemy shows up and stirs up an alternative story to the one God is living with his people. Right? The reminder, God was with his people and nobody had problems until the enemy showed up and started stirring stuff up. The enemy's words were, did God really say, first words we hear from Satan. And if you just look at those words, you already know from the get-go, Satan's primary job is just to cause confusion and cause us to question the divinity of God. Can you look around the world and see that he's doing an okay job at that now? Can you look around your life and the church and see that he's doing an okay job there too? He's been trying to get us to question God's word and truth ever since then. The enemy then deceives them by getting them to believe a different story than the one God's told them, even questioning God's motives and heart. In verse, sorry, Genesis 3, verse 4, he says, Certainly, or sorry, you certainly will not die. But God just said, if you sin, you're going to die. And Satan said, no, 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 you're not going to die. For God knows that on that day you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds like a solid invitation. Except for human history has continued to show us then, since then, we don't make good gods. But man, we keep trying. Inventing new ways to be in charge, inventing new ways to decide what's good and what's evil, that we get to be in that role and in that position that we get to decide because we get to be like God. And we've been falling for the same thing ever since, this lie that maybe God is trying to keep us down, maybe he's holding something good back from us. Here's the separation the belief that we don't need God because if we take our lives into our own hands, we could become like God and be able to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. And on the onset, that sounds okay because if you're like me, hi, my name's Don Kaufman and I like to be in charge. But how long of being in charge are we before we realize we're not good at being in charge? And the human in us continues to fall for the same deceit as the humans in Genesis chapter 3. And that's the bad news. Rather than believing God, we believe that we don't need him. And even to the point of believing that we could become like him ourselves. Rather than resting in God's knowledge of good and evil, we believe that we can set our own standard of good and evil. 
They ate the forbidden fruit, and when their eyes were open, right? Satan tells them, your eyes are going to be open. He was right about that part. The hard part is when their eyes are open, they didn't get anything that Satan had promised. He's good at deceiving. Instead, what they saw was their own nakedness and shame. What they realized is who they weren't, not who they could be. What they saw was that our life separated from God really looks like and what it really feels like when our lives are removed from the goodness of him. What is the spirit convicting us of? The sin in us that's continually separating us from God? The righteousness of God and how far we are from it in our own lives? And the judgment that happens as a result of a life lived apart from the confident trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus goes on to explain in this section the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I want us to give our attention to this breakdown. It's helpful for us to know what the Holy Spirit's doing in the world around us. Now, it's interesting uh, that in uh, the rest of Scripture, right, to my understanding, if you, I'm sure if you think I'm wrong, you'll send an email. So um, this is only my third week. Don't send them yet, but we'll get there. From what I've been able to read and find, every other part of Scripture that informs us of what the Holy Spirit does is for us, the church. From what I can see, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure you'll tell me, This isn't your homework assignment. Your homework assignment is to obey the word, not to challenge. Anyways, I'm already getting nervous. we got decades together. I'm trying to make sure it's paved well, right? Is what I can find is that this is the only part where we're told what the Holy Spirit does to the world. The rest of it's what the Holy Spirit is and does for the church. This seems to be the only section where it says what the Holy Spirit does for the world. And if you remember last week, We've said this, we come from that world. Meaning the Holy Spirit, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's already done this work in your life. So this isn't a, oh, my cousin needs to hear this, or my neighbor needs to hear that, guy at work needs to hear this. No, we needed to hear it. We probably need to be reminded of it so that we can do our job and not do the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. The first thing is this. The reason why he convicts the world is sin. Right? That's the reason. Chapter 16, verse 9 of John says, The Holy Spirit helper convicts regarding sin because they do not believe in me. Right? The qualifier he gives is what? Not sin because they cuss too much. Not sin because, man, when they get on the expressway, they look a little bit more like the kingdom of darkness than the kingdom of light. Get it? The sin is this. I know I'm meddling, Um, right? Because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin because we don't believe in Jesus. There are sins, plural, right, that we feel convicted of, but Jesus is addressing the sin nature, its root, not believing in Jesus. This word believe in the Greek means this confident trust, this assurance, this reliance, Do you see how it's different than what we sometimes translate as believe? Usually we mean something like this, an agreement in intellectual information, right? Is this color blue or is it red? We believe that it's blue. And so we believe that, but what Jesus is talking about is this reliance, this confident trust that I can lean on this and trust it to support me, but it's not something, it's him, 
The issue of sin is that they don't need me. They're not relying on me. They're doing life without me. There's no confident trust in me. The trust is in themselves, but they'd like for me to clean up their sin a little bit. Jesus isn't talking about a simple agreement with intellectual information. Jesus points out the sin that we need convicted of is our lack of confident trust. This idea we don't have confident trust in Jesus, it's easier to trust our own thoughts and feelings. Or we don't have assurance in Jesus. Instead, we have assurance in our own way, no matter how broken or selfish that way is. Or we aren't relying on Jesus. Instead, we rely on our own abilities, our own instincts, our own preferred way. Not committing individual sins, though that's an issue, but there's a root to it. Every action, attitude, or behavior, but here Jesus is talking about the unbelief that leads to those. The fundamental sin is when we put ourselves at the center of everything or anything. When we do that, we refuse to believe in Jesus who is and what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Remember, God sent his son, his promised anointed king into the world, and the world killed him. Too often in the church, we can rely on Jesus to save us from our sin, but we don't rely on his lordship over our life. Without the Holy Spirit, we are left to ourselves. If, sorry, if we are left to ourselves, we would never see ourselves as sinners. I'm pretty good, right, at thinking I, I'm okay. Things are all right over here. What the Holy Spirit does is say, Don, it's not all right. In fact, there's some stuff going on. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin of not believing in Jesus. Our sin that we don't need Jesus is the reason that the Holy Spirit is convicting us. Living like, right, uh, if, uh, here's the mantra, I got this. In business, I got this. In your workplace, I got this. In your home, I got this. Everything's falling on around you and you're crushed beneath it saying, no, 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 I got this. Right? Have you ever had people ask for help and your reply is, no, I've got this. What the Holy Spirit's convicting us of is to help us see the reality is you don't got this. We don't need to rely on Jesus, sorry, we don't need to rely on Jesus just for salvation. You do need it for that. But for every aspect of our life too, the Holy Spirit is regularly convicting us of that, that it's happened before and it might be happening right now where the Spirit is pointing out our lives, there might be a gap there between our reliance on Jesus and maybe our reliance on ourselves or anything else. Not just that we have uh, the reason, right, that, of the conviction, which is sin, but the second one is this, that righteousness is the standard. Uh, that there is, what are we supposed to live up to? What does a life without sin really look like? What does it mean to be in right standing with God? The Holy Spirit shows us. Part of the enemy's marketing in Genesis chapter 3 was that we would be like God. That's willing to buy the product. Right? It's like Bruce Almighty times 8 billion. What would we do if we could do everything God could do? Like the movie, we'd mess it up. If we're like God, then he is no longer the standard we compare everything to. In fact, if we are like God, then we get to create the standard. Is it better to have God's one standard for all eight billion of us on the globe, or is it better for eight billion people having their own, having God's standard for one world? 
The Holy Spirit's moving us back towards God's standard. This righteousness, this who we are and what we're supposed to be. John chapter 16, verse 10, the Holy Spirit helper convicts regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you are no longer, and no longer are you going to see me. That you can't look at the bodily form of Jesus walking around and say, that's what it looks like. We can read it, we can know it, but there still could be a disconnect. So the Holy Spirit comes and fills those gaps. So it points us back to the Son regularly testifying on his behalf, leading our lives back to him so that it's not just words on a page, it's God working through us and his word, and his word to show us who Jesus is and remind us of what righteousness really looks like. Why do we need convicted of righteousness? Because without the Holy Spirit, we compare ourselves with others or our past, and sometimes we can come to the conclusion that we're doing okay. If you would have seen the 19-year-old me, you wouldn't be as upset with this version. I'm doing okay. And we can rest with that and say, well, that's good. I'm better than what I was, right? Self-improvement, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and look at me go. And the Holy Spirit says, your bootstraps aren't enough. We need convicted of righteousness because between the time of Jesus' ascension and second coming, Jesus will not be with us and has not been with us in bodily form. Without Jesus standing in front of us, we need to be spurred out of our perspective into what righteousness really looks like in Christ. The world did not receive Jesus. We rejected him, even killed him, so he's with the Father. Don't forget the reason he's not with us anymore. He came as king. They rejected his kingdom. The world didn't, while on earth Jesus was accused of an unbelieving world, of being this, a blasphemer, a lawbreaker, a deceiver. They even called him demon-possessed. And that's how they treated Jesus. The Holy Spirit shows us who Jesus really is because the world on its own will not get to that conclusion. The world may not be able to see the Holy Spirit of God, but they can see what the Spirit is doing through the body he inhabits in us, his church as they watch our lives the whole world may not be able to see who jesus is but you and the holy spirit will testify about him galatians chapter 5 verse 25 says if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit and i love the language paul uses because he almost gives this in the same way that we live by breathing air Right? There's a reason why you can't, hold your, you can't stay underwater too long. You don't live by water, you live by air. Jesus says, uh, right, or sorry, Paul says in Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, if this is the only way our new life has breath in our lungs, then we better keep in step with him where he's going, because if the Spirit moves over there, there goes our life. And we better be where he is so that we got that life breathing into our lungs. You felt this, I know I have where I've not been in step with the Spirit and it feels like I'm choking. It feels like there's a quality of life that's going down. It feels like, right, I need something that I don't have and too often it's because the Holy Spirit has kept in step, but I've not. What the Spirit is doing, where we're going because the Spirit is in us and we are living by the Spirit In the same way we can't stay away from where air is, our souls can't stay away from where the Spirit is. So we have to keep in step with the Spirit. God's standard of righteousness and justice is absolute. 
any human standard is continually changing with culture and emotion. Right? And we can get upset about the version now, and we should, but 20 years ago there was a different one, and 20 years ago before that, culture and emotion had a different version, and we as humans are pretty good at being tossed back and forth by the waves. However, we're feeling that season seems to be what we think should happen. We need a standard, and we have one in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is working to show us how far removed our lives are from Him not to show us necessarily just how bad we are, but in light of that, to bring us to the one who can make us where we need to be. Many will say it's evolving, right? This idea, this standard of good and evil. What they mean is, is that continually learning from the past and adapting as better for the future, and that sounds about as good as Satan's words in Genesis chapter 3. It sounds winsome. However, an honest evaluation would show that culture's trajectory of righteousness is merely based off trends and feelings. Right? Meaning, we're in the same spot the church was in 2,000 years ago. Same people, same world, different thoughts, different feelings, same trajectory. Humanity does not control the future, and we don't control setting life's standards. God does. The Holy Spirit regularly draws us to, leads us to, sometimes drags us to the reminder of who he is. So we see righteousness in its best form, the living Christ, and brings us there. Righteousness before God is impossible because we keep making it about ourselves, right? In light of who he is, if we match ourselves up. However, Unless God sends his son who dies on our behalf to forgive our sin and repair what's broken because of it, now all of a sudden we can stand before God. Like Hebrews says, we could actually stand in the throne of grace with confidence. Not because we're confident in who we are, but because the Holy Spirit's convicted us to the life of Christ and we've seen what that forgiveness and grace looks like flushed out and we've been saved into this kingdom and all of a sudden we start seeing in our life we can stand before the Father because we've been adopted as sons and daughters. Without Jesus, you don't want to be before the presence of God. With Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because he's our ever-present help in our deepest time of need. Then Jesus sends the helper who convicts us or reveals the ugly truths of who we are against the standards of God, continually pointing us to Jesus as the Savior and the Redeemer and the King that we all need. The last one I want to look at is this, is that judgment is the verdict. Now, we live in a time where we are so sensitive to being judged. Right? I'm sure you've never said it or you've heard it. But there's people out there, right? You can't judge me on this. You can't judge me on that. It's like, well, I could. Certainly could, right? Shouldn't. But what I want us to look at is this. No one has ever liked being judged, but when we have gone so far out of our way, we have gone so far out of our way to ensure that no one gets judged that we've actually started condemning the act of judging. You know what I mean? As though judging itself is the bad part. Let me clear that up. Judgment isn't the problem, it's just the verdict. The guilty offensive way in us is the problem. All judgment does is reveal what's 
true. Judgment is actually what we all want. We want justice. We want what is right to be upheld. We want what is wrong to be held accountable, right? We want to know what is really going on. Judgment lets us know the verdict of what's been found to actually be true. Remember, the martyred saints under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 are actually crying out for God's judgment. What they want is for God to judge and be just. It's a good thing in Christ. John chapter 16 verse 11, the Holy Spirit helper convicts regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The enemy, the deceiver, the God of this age, the ruler of this world, he's blinded, distracted, and confused the minds of those who do not believe Jesus' gospel. The ruler of this world is ruling this world, but he's a defeated ruler. Now, I like to play board games, right? I love the game Risk. Anybody with me? Anybody not a nerd that doesn't? Okay, just checking. Nerds unite, we'll do a game night, all right? But here's the deal. In Risk, you don't need to understand the game for this part, but if you want to play, we can play, right? Uh, There's a point in the game, usually I'm just wiping the floor with everybody, but just don't ask anybody I've ever played with, but that's my version of the story, right? When I know that I'm not going to win, and there's a moment where it goes from like, I wonder to like certainty, I, I shift roles. And I don't go out without a fight. Actually, my job is to sabotage everyone else's game. I'm the guy you don't like to play with, right? Because when I know that I'm out of the game, I want to mess up everyone else's game because I could totally wipe out number one and bring them to number two. And that gives me a joy that's of the flesh. And pray for me, right? To know that I messed somebody else's game up. Satan's already been defeated, but the consequence is the game isn't over yet. And in the meantime, what he's doing is he's looking at the rest of us as we press on towards the goal uh, for which Christ has called his heavenly word. As we go in that direction and the world is trying, uh, whatever the world's doing, but as, as God's drawing people to himself and the spirit is convicting, Satan's already lost, but man, he's meddling in all of our games trying to throw it, trying to confuse it, trying to make us ask questions, trying to throw curveballs. The ruler of this world was judged, defeated, and found guilty at the cross. And when Jesus returns, Satan will face the full consequences of his guilty sentence. Until then, he knows he's defeated, and he's just sabotaging everyone else's life, taking them down with him. And when we view the world that way, I hope, again, Like Jesus' prayer when he comes into Jerusalem, that it causes us to weep as we see a world that's lost without a shepherd. Too often, we can be the ones pointing fingers. We can be the ones complaining. We can be the ones throwing darts and daggers. We can be the ones saying, look at the world and how blah, blah, blah they are and how this. Jesus didn't do any of that. And he's the Christ that we follow. What he did is he showed up to those people, loved those people, wept over those people, died for those people, even on the cross forgave the ones that hung him there. Get it? The problem is, is what, they, what we don't see. Jesus gives us a window into the, the heavenly realm. So what we don't see is this battle going on for the souls of the world with 
an evil one who's already been defeated, who's just sabotaging everything. That's why Paul says our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? When the Holy Spirit convicts, he's reminding us that Jesus is already victorious, Satan is already defeated. Will you live by being deceived by the ruler of the world who's already defeated you? Or will you see that life lives away and apart, that life lived apart and away from God leads to destruction? And if we live for the world, we will receive judgment of the ruler of this world. Uh, We get whichever one we follow. Following Christ does lead through the cross, but man, it leads to resurrection. Sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Co-heirs with Christ. Following the ruler of the world leads in the direction he goes in. Defeat. Get it? When that judgment comes, what we'll find is who was Lord over our life. And there's not multiple choice. It's two options. Was Jesus Lord or was the world Lord? Or the ruler of the world. Judging is not our job. Our human mind and heart isn't capable. It's God who judges. Convicting people is not our job because our attitudes and emotions aren't trustworthy. It's the Holy Spirit who does the conviction. Saving people is not our job, though some of the moms in the room are trying. Human history has proven we're not capable. That's why we needed Jesus. It's him who saves. Our job is not to judge, convict, or save. Our job, Jesus just said it in a couple verses before this, our job is just to witness. Right? It's just to witness. If you've ever been in a courtroom, or you've ever watched Judge Judy, we'll throw that out, right? If you know how a courtroom works. The witness's job is not to make the person look bad. It's not to convict them of anything in their life. It's not to do anything. Their job is just to tell their story and what they've seen. And as we read this, here's what our story is, church, if you believe in Christ and you're walking with him, is we were in a spot and the Holy Spirit showed us our sin, pointed out what was going on in us. Like David prays in Psalm 51, he showed us the offensive way in us showed us what righteousness really looked like in Christ and what could be ours through him, uh, that the Holy Spirit convicted us and showed us judgment and what our life looks like if we keep living under the ruler of this world or what could be possible if we lived under the ruler of the kingdom of God. And all I get to say on the witness stand, here's what he's done for me. Here's where I was when I was in my sin Here's how far removed I was from God and my own righteousness. Here uh, is where, man, if judgment day were to come before I was, you know, with Christ, here's where I would go. Because of Jesus, right? Not only am I adopted as a son into the kingdom of God, I get to help be a representative, an ambassador of Christ to the world I live in, that this life I live now, I live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. You get it? My job is to keep telling that story. So church, sometimes we do a better job of judging, but that's God's job. Sometimes we do a better job of convicting people, but that's the Spirit's job. Sometimes we're trying to work to save everybody, but that's not our job. Sometimes we just neglect our job. It's to witness and to tell and to share and to not let people not know what God's done in our life. 
If you look around at your life and you feel the weight of living separated from God, do you feel the weight of your guilt from broken life of trying to do it on your own? Do you feel the heaviness of shame for everything that you've done, who you've hurt, and who you've been hurt by? Jesus says this. says, so if the Son sets you free, finish it. You'll be free indeed. But without Jesus, you're stuck in conviction. You get it? You might sense the Holy Spirit working right now to point out how serious this all is, and God isn't pointing it out because he's bad. He's pointing it out because he's good, and he wants you to know he made a way. Bringing us to Jesus. Drawing us back to the Son. John 3.16. I keep going back to it because this is in the Gospel of John. This has already been said. So by the time we get to these teachings, this truth is already true. Sometimes we know John 3.16, but we forget the good stuff that follows afterwards. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now let's keep reading. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, but we don't get loose on the condemnation. It shows up here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one son of God. Get it? Jesus doesn't really have to point out much. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Gives this image almost like cockroaches when you turn the light on. Get it? As soon as the light exposes it, we scatter because we don't want to be seen by the light. The stuff done in darkness, the things hidden, the life that's removed and set apart. But man, when light hits, it starts showing stuff around and we're faced with what is our version of righteousness and where's Jesus at? Where, where are we at in our sin and where's Jesus at? Where's our life when judgment comes and where's Jesus at? But whoever does what is true comes to, that, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is so good, and it's so true, and it's been true in us, it's been true for us. Some of you, some of you have received Christ, and he is Lord over your life. You have been saved, not through your own works, but by grace through faith, you are walking with Jesus. And what we get to do is find where the Spirit's at, who he's working in, who's struggling and knows it, who's suffering and knows it, who just needs somebody to come share their story of what God's done in their life. The Spirit's doing so much work, you don't have to do any of it. But what he's looking for is us as people is to actually open up our mouths and actually, like Jesus, don't forget the power of John 3.16 is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sometimes we don't give ourselves to the world around us that needs him. We don't walk across the street to the neighbor. We don't lay a hand on the shoulder of our coworker and pray. 
But if we follow Jesus, that's what we do. If we stay in step with the Spirit, that's where He's at. Already doing all of that, we show up, we tell our story, because we've seen this to be true. The Spirit has stopped us in our tracks and has shown us to who we really are. We are dead to sin, living in darkness, lost in the mess of our own life without Jesus. That's the bad news. We're preparing. We're about to take communion together. And remember that our righteousness is not our own, but it's on the basis of faith in Jesus. We come to the table and we remember Jesus' body broken for us. We remember his blood poured out for us as this new covenant. That the way we are right with God, the way we are with him, the way we get to be with him, the way our, our entrance into the kingdom is what we're about to remember. We're about to celebrate. Some of us have forgotten. What we need to remember is for our own life what our story was. Some of it's that working out our salvation with fear and trembling and going back and remembering how little of this was in your control. And remembering, man, if all we've got to do is let people know what he's done, I'll tell the story. And when we take this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death, we preach this message. We need to preach it to ourselves, but man, we've got people around us that need it. And we'll proclaim it till he comes. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you remind us and would you work in us? Would you be, would your spirit convict us and show us where we're off? Father, would your spirit draw us to you? Would we be reminded of the Son? Would we be reminded of who we are in him? Would we be reminded of who the world is without him? Would we be reminded of who we were without him? Father, at this time, would you lead us? Would you draw us in and would you remind us of who we are in Christ? Through remembering Jesus' physical body, broken on a cross for us. Through Jesus' physical body pouring out his blood for this new covenant. God, would you draw us to you in Jesus' name? Amen.